Welcome to yet another weekly edition of the BNP Paribas Wealth Management Podcast. I'm Edmund Shing, Chief Investment Officer, joined today by my good friend and colleague, Guy Ertz from Luxembourg. Hello, Guy. Hello. Hi. So today, Guy, what we are going to talk about is the outlook for the US economy in particular, given the very steep rate hiking cycle we've seen from the Fed, combined with the US regional banking stress we've experienced over the last few weeks. So what I wanted to do is just remind the audience, first of all, about the rate hiking cycle and how exceptional this has been, to the point that in March 2022, so just over one year ago, the US federal funds rate, the benchmark interest rate, was 0%. And today we stand at about 5%, and we may even go slightly higher in May. This has been the fastest rate hiking cycle in the US in the past 40 years. So the first obvious question to you, Guy, as our resident macroeconomic expert, is have we already seen the full impact of the rate hikes that have already been done by the Fed in the last year? Have we seen the full impact in slowing the US economy already? Or do we expect more slowing ahead simply because of what the Fed has already done? Yeah, that's, a, that's a, of course, the, the, the key question in the market today. I mean, the, the answer to the question is no, we have not yet seen the full impact simply because there is always a relatively big time gap or lag before the interest rate really impact uh, the economy. And the transmission mechanism is obviously via credit, via loans. We do start to see now uh, the impact coming in on the housing market also to some extent. On, uh, on loans. But of course, as you said, the, the, the speed and amplitude of this rate hike cycle was quite record uh, strong. We are almost through. We think we have still uh, 25 basis points in May, and that will be it with the terminal rate at 525. So we are looking for a major uh, slowdown in the coming uh, month. And of course, the banking crisis is also to some extent adding to the risks here uh, in this uh, scenario. Yeah, so picking up on that, because of course, in addition to the monetary tightening from the Fed, these higher interest rates, we can now add the stress in the regional banking sector with the failures of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and of course, Silvergate Bank, to name but three. Now, this should lead to even tighter credit conditions. You've mentioned the fact that credit conditions were tightening anyway, simply because of the actions of the Fed, and this is absolutely right. But surely now the pressure on US regional banks and the deposit flight that we're seeing, partly because of the Fed rate hiking cycle, you know, money is leaving bank deposit accounts because they only yield 0.5% on average and is moving more and more to money market funds. People are buying money market funds as an alternative where you can get 4.7% very close to the Fed funds rate today. So that's natural. People are simply hunting for higher yield on their cash. But the result of this deposit flight, the banking stress, is surely going to be even tighter credit conditions, even more difficulty for households and companies to get loans. So how much worse is that going to make the economic slowdown in the US, mm -hmm. do you think? First, uh, coming back to the to the additional mechanism uh, here after the rise in uncertainty, the, the classical uh, argument is, of course, that a higher risk premium is going to weigh on credit activity in, in general. So uh, there is going to be a higher cost of capital. And then more, more particularly in the banking sector, with uh, the stress you mentioned, with also a potential for lower deposits, 
there will be also a tendency of banks to ask uh, or to tighten credit conditions. So all of that is adding to uh, the, the, the slowdown we expect in terms of, uh, of credit and, and loans. Is that leading to a major recession? Well, keep in mind that before the banking crisis, there was actually a doubt whether the economy would slow sufficiently. I mean, before we had the, 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 um, the crisis in the banking sector, we actually had economic data that was showing that the economies were actually very resilient. So there was a certain nervousness on the central bank side that they would have to do much more in terms of rates. That has changed. Clearly, with the banking crisis, the need to do more than what they have done or, or, or what we expect, uh, that risk of overdoing things is quite low now. So that is actually a good news. Uh, and of course, um, the, um, the economy still has clear signals, especially on the consumer side, uh, that we will not go into a recession comparable to 2008, but will rather look for a recession that is relatively moderate uh, in amplitude and limited in, in time. Okay, so what I wanted to pick up here is the sort of glass half empty versus the glass half full argument. The glass half empty argument is that we've had very rapid interest rate hikes by the Fed. And added to that, now we have the banking stress, which will slow loan growth and maybe send you know send credit into contraction and slowing therefore slowing the economy even more. However, there is the glass half full argument, which is that since the eruption of the regional banking crisis over the last couple of weeks, we've seen a huge drop in long-term interest rates. So short-term interest rates, like the two-year Treasury yield, has fallen quite a lot, reflecting, as you say, the, 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 the lower need for the Fed to do much more in this interest rate cycle. But long-term bond yields have fallen also substantially. And from what I remember, Guy, and you'll remind me if I'm correct or not in this, long-term interest rates are more important today to the global economy, and in particular to the US economy, than short-term interest rates, given the amount of debt that is refinanced on a long-term basis, both for households in terms of mortgages, but also in terms of companies, for instance, via corporate bonds. So am I right in saying that? And how much of an offset is are these lower long-term interest rates to the higher Fed funds rate and the obviously credit contraction that we may be seeing? Yeah, I mean, the, the argument is, is very uh, relevant here to, to look at uh, the uh, long-term rates and especially also to look what we expect them uh, to do in the coming month. And here comes the part where we are not fully consensus uh, in terms of view. Uh, the market is looking for the Fed to already cut rates in the second half of the year, while we think that the Fed will cut rates, but rather in the first quarter of 24. Why is that? I mean, there's uh, uh, the, the structural argument uh, with the lesson of the 80s. Um, I mean, Mr. Volcker has become very popular uh, uh, in his reputation that he was able to break the trend in inflation. But what is not so well known is that he still had some issues because he cut rates too quickly as inflation was falling. Um, and um, that is actually the big lesson for central bankers today. And that is why central bankers are very likely to wait for around six to eight months to really be sure that inflation is coming down. So um, that is something we have to uh, to monitor. But clearly, we think that when the Fed starts cutting rates, things can go quite fast and quite big. So we could see about uh, 
around 200 basis points cut in the uh, full year 24 period, bringing rates lower. And we know, of course, that yields anticipate that, um, longer term yields in particular. So as soon as we will have more clarity, um, there is even potential for yields to stabilize at, at lower levels even. And that is actually uh, a positive factor. So um, keep an eye on uh, on this issue. I mean, uh, we will have to see whether uh, our base case scenario turns out to be the right one, which is a limited moderate recession, in, especially in the second half of this year. That would lead the Fed to wait until Q1 to start cutting rates. But once they start, they could do really big in, in a short period of time. And obviously, uh, the ECB would be in a similar type of position. They will reach the terminal rate around June and also wait for about six to eight months and then also start cutting uh, rates. So all of that should gradually actually be more supportive for key assets that depend on discounting, typically bonds and equities. So that is something that actually is potentially a, a more positive driver as we have more clarity over the coming weeks and months. Okay, but to play devil's advocate here, Guy, we talk about a modest recession for the second half of this year and into the beginning of next year, which is almost quite a comfortable scenario. Of course, a lot of clients would say, well, aren't you just being too optimistic and aren't we really at risk of a serious credit crunch, mm. which could provoke a much deeper recession, much closer to 2008 than we would like to admit. Now, what is your response to that? And why do you think that's not going to happen? If we compare to 2008, uh, uh, starting with uh, the, um, the banks, uh, we are in a very different position. I mean, uh, in 2008, of course, uh, the default of Lehman uh, took everybody by surprise. And there was also a high dependency between banks in terms of financing, a loss of confidence. Uh, today, this is quite unlikely. On top of it, especially in Europe, uh, banks do not need anymore so much the interbank uh, market. So any any type of, of, of similar process looks quite unlikely. And if we take the more important dimension of the consumer, because consumption demand is two-thirds of GDP, so that's the big chunk of things, on the consumer side, what made the 2008 recession so tough uh, in amplitude and length was the fact that uh, the households realized that actually their probability to lose their job and to lose it for a long period of time was sharply rising. And that, of course, led households to cut straight away in their consumption pattern, uh, which today looks unlikely. Why? The job market is in a, in a much more healthy uh, situation today. And especially from a structural uh, point of view, what is that? Well, remember the media coverage of the last 12 months. Uh, everywhere in the Western world, it became more and more clear that due to demographic effects, skilled workers become a scarce. A scarce. Uh, there, is a, there is a lack of, of people. Uh, and what is the logical consequence? Even if companies would in normal times uh, lay off people, they will today think twice because it will be very difficult again to find qualified people once uh, things get better. And that is this kind of labor hoarding uh, process should be limiting uh, quite a lot uh, the potential for layoffs. And thus, we think that households are in a completely different situation when it comes to the uncertainty. And that should be rather a support. And that is our key assumption why 
uh, we should have a recession which is moderate in amplitude and limited in time. Okay, so consumption should hold up better because, in the sense, employment and therefore salaries hold up better than you would normally expect. And I think I have a lot of sympathy with that because I remember last year going on holiday, the airports were a nightmare. And it was precisely because airports and airlines had laid off too many people during COVID. And guess what? They couldn't hire them back again when the good times returned. So I have a lot of sympathy with that. Okay, so in terms of the conclusion, therefore, let's look at bond markets, the fixed income sector. Um, we recently downgraded our recommendation on short-term government bonds from positive to neutral because of the big move, for instance, in two-year treasury yields from over 5% at peak to 3.7% today. Okay. We're not keen on the high-yield credit segment, you know, high-yield corporate bonds either because of the risk of zombie companies, the difficulty of refinancing um, in these higher interest rate environment, particularly in the US. But the segment we do like still are investment-grade bonds in Europe and the US with a maturity of, let's say, three to five years. Now, could you explain why we feel that, given what you've said, is the sweet spot for investors today? Well, um, as you mentioned, the the move in uh, in uh, Govi yields uh, was was quite strong, uh, a move down. So obviously, the the level of yield is is much less attractive. Interestingly, now um, on the investment grade corporate part, uh, the a rise in risk premium has been actually almost compensating the fall in Govi yields so that we have actually yield to maturities that are not that far from where they were a few months ago, meaning you can still build today a portfolio of investment-grade corporate bonds uh, that have a very decent uh, yield to maturity and do that with uh, maturities uh, uh, around uh, three to five years. What is important here, um, if you are locking these yields over three to five years, it has a, a huge uh, advantage compared, for example, um, um, to, the, uh, to using a, a deposit rate six months and then you know, using it again in six months and so on. Because if you are investing in uh, short-term deposits, uh, you will probably wake up uh, in 2024 with a much lower level of rates. Keep in mind, we are expecting the Fed to cut rates about 200 basis points in 2024. So investors should not wait too long before building portfolios that can have maturities uh, somewhat longer and lock in these levels of yield. So um, among the recommendations uh, in the portfolios, uh, this is a, a key recommendation today that we reiterate, build portfolios of quality of investment grade corporate bonds with maturity three to five years, be it in the US or in Europe, because it is very likely that by next year, uh, we will have uh, rates coming down quickly and then it will be then more comfortable to have a portfolio with maturities than uh, three to five years and locking in these yields. So in other words, cash may be king today, but it may not be king next year. Absolutely. That is one of the key messages today. Great. Well, thank you very much, Guy, for, for those answers. And thank you to our audience for listening to this weekly podcast. I will remind you, please do like, share and subscribe to our weekly podcast. Uh, and please look for our other research material, videos, podcasts and articles by searching on Google or other search providers for Voice of Wealth, BNP Paribas Wealth Management.
Thanks a lot and talk to you again next week. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye.